0: Welcome back to Note Bene. Oh, my goodness, Nate. We have some serious stuff to get into today. We this really is do. Like, this is like what the podcast was made for. Let's be honest.
1: He has been spilled and it's been spilled in Miami Dade County Court.
0: We are here to wrap it up. We get me in New York. I'm fucking freezing my balls off. Nate, you look warm and cozy in Los Angeles. We'll get into the idle chit chat in a little bit. But let's dive right into this um, this cesspool of piranhas uh, in (laughs) Miami-Dade, man. So it broke uh, broke. Story broke yesterday on Bloomberg News uh, reported by I don't even know who. James James Tarmy. No idea who that is, but whatever. God bless him for bringing this to our attention. Uh, digging into some shady dealings, um, featuring uh, Michael. Uh, how do you say Michael's second name? Michael Zufu Huang. Huang, the founder of the X Museum in Beijing, mm-hmm. and uh, very much a socialite, as he's referred to. Oh yeah, uh, fashion plate, nice and enough guy. Super uh, nice guy,
1: known and- him for years.
0: And it turns out this has been brewing for over almost a year now, this lawsuit between him and another collector, uh, f- collector uh, Federica, Federico Castro de Minari, who's described as a Monaco resident, although I believe mm-hmm. he's from South America.
1: He has uh, he's building a museum in Argentina, apparently, that was the, supposedly
0: the... supposedly he's always seemed <laughs> the, he's the, the... he's always seemed plainly shady to my eye. But what do I mm-hmm. know? That's just my opinion um, in any case. So this this case was filed last March by Michael uh, against Federico um, and alleging breach of contract and all also legal stuff. But basically, here's the story. So. Federico had reached out to Michael and had asked him to basically help him secure some work using the name of the ex-museum, or his name, as Mm -hmm. a museum founder in Asia to secure some hard-to-get works from galleries on his behalf. Uh, Michael agreed to do this uh, in exchange for a 10% fee. Someone called that an advisory fee. I'm an art advisor. For a lot of my clients, that's how I charge them, 10% on top of the net price from the gallery. And uh, mm-hmm. Michael was successful in getting in gaining access to a number of works, uh, Harold Ancar. Nicholas Party, very highly in demand works, and a Cecily very in, very in demand, very in demand, and an incredible Cecily Brown painting uh, from the Paula Cooper Gallery, and this uh, ac- this acquisition of that painting took place in Miami Basel in 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael gets the painting for him, no problem. Uh, uh, Michael pays uh, Michael uh, charges Federico via an invoice, gets paid, pays the Paula Cooper Gallery the uh, what is it, seven hundred seventy thousand dollars or yep. seven hundred even, something like that. Seven hundred even, yeah. Seven hundred even. Then charges Federico the seven seventy, the extra ten percent. Nice little quick tidy profit of seventy thousand dollars. Now, of course, this painting is worth a whole lot more on the open market, but that's why they right. have to res- re- restrict access to who can buy it. They don't want it to go into someone who's going to flip it for the million plus dollars it would actually be worth in an right. open market. Right, and
1: and and to further ensure that it doesn't get flipped, there was a little contract that that is had to sign in order to buy the painting
0: yeah an addendum to the uh attend- an addendum to the bill of sale to the invoice stating that he will give the gallery the right of first refusal if decides to try and resell this painting within three years mm-hmm. he signs that invoice and pays it um so he's um, uh one could say or from paula cooper's standpoint is contractually obligated to do as such mm-hmm. everything goes quiet no big deal and then i guess uh the following year in august of the following year august of 2020 in the midst of COVID. Uh, it seems like Michael gets some uh, some communications from the Paula Cooper gallery from uh, from Steve Henry there, good friend of the pod, uh, who's mm-hmm. like, "Dude, what's up? We've been told by Levy Gorvy that this painting is is being resold by them." Mm-hmm. Uh, he he is like, "What the fuck? What's going on to Michael?" I mean, Steve is a, a very a polite guy; he would never use that kind of language. So I'm paraphrasing. Uh, Michael mm-hmm. freaks out. Goes to Federico. Is like, dude, what's going on? Federico's like, oh no, it's not being resold. No, 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 it's all a lie. Uh, There's these fantastic text messages that are uh, that are appended to a uh, filing Mm -hmm. that was filed at the end of last year.
1: Um, Right. The best of these text messages, which is I think listed in the appendix as uh, Federico instructs Zupu to lie via text message. Yes. (laughs) Yes. where, Uh, Where your answer should be, dear Steve. The work has not been sold. I'm worried about these accusations. Please provide me with proof of your accusations as they're not true. Best regards, Michael, which is patently false. because It's he, completely you know, false. We know that this painting work. is
0: sold. Um, I mean, anyway. that's
1: sociopathic. It's wild.
0: What? Paula Cooper uh, threatens, or appears—it's—it's it's a little bit unclear—but threatens a lawsuit. Basically, um, Michael, in order to keep his um, relationship and on some on some level with the gallery, pays them off an undisclosed amount, and then turns around and sues Federico uh, to recoup mm. those costs, plus extra money for the massive rep, uh, reputational damage that this causes, uh, uh, and as well as attorney's fees um we're not sure w- what happens in these negotiations the lawsuit gets filed there's a there's a response uh from Federico's lawyers response
1: I found fascinating the
0: response is the is for me actually one of the most interesting things um but they end up settling They the, they settle somehow I'm not sure if the money changed hands or not um and weirdly this the, the settlement happened at the end of last year the end of 2021 but it seems though all this stuff then leaked to Bloomberg and Michael goes on the record with a number of quotes to the Bloomberg reporter, um, which I find interesting because they've come to a settlement. I'm not sure who in whose interest it was to then leak all this to Bloomberg or if Bloomberg got it on its own. Um, I think that,
1: you know, you know, these court filings are public. So uh, oftentimes when I get, you know, some court filing that no one's noticed it's just because it's out there in public. And then someone's like, oh, my God, there's a lawsuit filed involving art world people. So so it's not necessarily been leaked by one yeah, of but the parties someone, involved.
0: You don't think I don't know. It seems interesting that it bubbles up now. Um, yeah,
1: I'm, I'm we we sure, have no way but, of
0: knowing. There's no way of knowing. But mm-hmm. to me, it seems suspicious as though someone wanted this to become public, well, either one of the parties or perhaps even a third party who is seeking to damage it. There's a lot to unpack here. This is a big fucking deal to have the owner of a of a a Chinese based museum um, who's seen as a very class A can get access to just about anything on the primary market for him to be using that access to act as a de facto art advisor and basically reselling that access for 10 percent is crazy right um, to see a gallery actually try and enforce one of these resale agreements is really mm-hmm. interesting So there's a lot of legal debate about whether they are enforceable or not and i think mm-hmm. we can get into that in a second And then to see this shady guy who decided to use his friendship with Michael, it seems like they had a social relationship based upon the familiar nature of the text messages. They're always text messages. To use that, like this guy did him a solid, got him stuff that no one can get at a fair retail price. And then literally almost not quite the next day, but basically the next day, resell it for massive profit. And the Mm -hmm. the rumor is that at least the Cecily Brown traded several times before Paula Cooper heard about it. Right, um, because because I think it initially sold
1: through an auction house, according to the response, and yes. then ended up with Levy Gorby. So exactly. So and and the response indicated that Zufu's ten percent of the resale, which he supposedly was entitled to, given some other contracts that had been signed, would have been in the mid six figures, indicating that this Cecily Brown was selling for. Three, four, five million dollars,
0: which, which which tracks. Um, but it yeah. seems though he didn't see that money. So whoever this Federico mm-hmm. guy is, um, he's a bit of a mystery. My googling beyond like some kind of social, uh, social level stuff. Well, very so hard he was, to figure out what the source of his money. He was is. on
1: the Tate Young. Uh, uh, sorry, the it was the um, what do they call it? The Tate Young patrons. Uh, alongside uh, some other good friends of ours who I don't necessarily need. To well, no right
0: dir- no dirty money ever gets laundered through London. So
1: <laughs> so he's that he's also uh, listed as being one of the uh, sponsors of Simone Lee's uh, upcoming
0: pavilion at the Venice Biennale. Wow, that's interesting. I wonder what kind of access to works by Simone that bought him. <laughs> uh, and I'm wondering where his money really comes from. Well, that is, you know, this mystery. I have nothing. Uh, I several people reached out to me via Instagram. I posted this story yesterday, uh, alleging, and I, I have no knowledge of this truth, and I, I'm not going to use their name, but alleging that Federico is actually himself a front for a third party who is a fairly well-known uh, art wow. dealer. Uh who, who often, ba- yeah. Often based out of Hawaii Um, that and that actually he is the one uh, that was providing the money for these deals through Michael. I have no sense of that is true or not. This is mm-hmm. absolute gossip, but that's what our listeners want to hear. They want to hear the dirt behind the dirt. And that's what I'm hearing.
1: I know. Uh, Well, that's that's what we're here to provide the dirt behind the dirt. And yes, this is an inception level dream within a dream. Uh, like scammers on scammers, kind of, kind
0: of situation going on, and it is fascinating. I mean, a lot to unpack. Nate, do you want to get into any of the stuff that is in this response as it relates to artist resale and whether they're valid or not? Did you I have mean, a chance to
1: read through this? I I did, and 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 you know, not being a lawyer myself, I wish we we could have you know gotten the the speed dial on on our uh, to our attorney to talk this over. But what I found fascinating about the response was basically the sort of human element of it, like. It's casting Zufu as the flipper, not uh, Fede as the flipper. And it's kind of like, who is in the wrong here? Because, you know, they're alleging that Zufu breached the Paula Cooper contract as soon as he transferred the work over to Fede. So he was the one who was violating this terms of agreement with the gallery. Whereas Zufu was like, no, because I didn't resell it for more money. I was just, you know, passing it along for my fee. So... And it, well, it, listen. It, when you're,
0: we're, yeah, when you're paying the kind of prices to Quinn Emanuel that that Federico was uh, <laughs> for this response, they, they, I mean, they really went after Michael a little bit personally, I would say. Yeah. My interest in this response, um, which looks like it costs about fifty thousand dollars in billable hours at least, is um, under response section C, where they're basically attacking the whole nature, at least in Florida, of a resale clause being enforceable. Um, right. There, and and again, I'm not a lawyer, and I don't have the um, mental willpower to to know so much about it. But they make a very compelling, at least to my reading, argument that it's a restraint of trade um, and basically mm-hmm. that, that it's it's the galleries and collectors uh, acting as a cartel to restrain trade by limiting how and when and through which channels. Uh, a piece of merchandise can be resold and it's a pretty compelling argument and it's one that i've always assumed to be true on some level it's just the fact that no one's been willing to pay the lawyer cost to actually litigate it um and as this is settled it's, there's still no definitive answer but um right. it's a pretty pretty strong strong argument against resale at least in florida under florida law
1: Against resale
0: uh, stipulations
1: and contracts. Yeah, yeah, excuse yeah, me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, obviously that's fascinating. Um, unfortunately, this won't be going to court, so we won't get any sort of ruling yeah, on that. If, I can, but, if I, can just,
0: uh, I can just read one quote they, uh, from a paragraph, quote, the no shop, no resale, and first refusal clauses are intended to and do artificially restrict the supply of an artist's works in the market and allow the proponent, who is not the current seller of the works, to set the resale prices for those works. Powerful tools to manipulate the market. Mhm. Um yeah. this and I think, you know, and that that's exactly what they're intended to do, really.
1: I know. Yeah, I mean, the state of Florida does not like anyone interfering with their money-making abilities.
0: So No, no. Yeah. Neither COVID nor nor resale clauses. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, another, you know, I have to say as someone who has often uh spoken to galleries about uh on behalf of of grade A level collectors who do not resell things, trying to gain access to works and heard the phrase i'm sorry but we're selling that to a chinese museum or that's on hold mm-hmm. for a chinese institution uh yeah. I want, the next person that says that to me to fucking our fair is gonna get <laughs> going. i'm gonna unload on because this just proves what i've always been a little bit suspicious of not all of them clearly and, and not to use too broad a brush to paint but there's certainly a lot of shenanigans with these quote-unquote institutions going on and this is just in black and white seeing that uh in in plain english right
1: right i mean you know the way that the Bloomberg story, uh, you know, sort of sold the 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 nutcraft to the Bloomberg readers was this is a peek into the clandestine art world that you never get to see, and that's kind of like really what uh, this really brought us. It's not going to go to trial. It's not going to get any juicier than this. But there in the exhibits being presented by both the plaintiff and the defendant. There's some really fascinating
0: stuff. I mean, I think the short of it is neither of these guys will be able to buy shit for a while, I wouldn't think. Um, Yeah.
1: And I do (laughs) feel
0: on that. But yeah, I mean, that's just my that's just my sense. I mean, it would be really hard if your sales director at a gallery to say to your boss, hey, we're selling this really hard to get thing. Certainly Federico is done. I mean, I can't imagine Mm. anyone wanting to sell him any work uh, after this. Um, Yeah especially since he paid lawyers to make such a strong anti-resale argument. And then Michael, I think, really painted himself in a box. And I'm not sure why he did it. I mean, for 10% of these, you know, six-figure deals, you know, 70, 80 grand plus travel expenses, it seems like pretty short-sighted. Maybe they were friends, you know.
1: Maybe Zufu just really thought he was doing a friend a favor. You know, this the, the chumminess of this world, uh sometimes c- can cover up like ulterior motives and like i I don't know if Eddie at all i, I mean, think i might have met him once or twice but like he's dude you know.
0: guy's got a physique to die for he is a tasty <laughs> tasty piece of, piece yeah, of i don't meat. even know that oh okay. yeah just following his instagram i mean this guy spends a lot of time on his bod definitely can uh definitely cannot uh take any <laughs> issue with his fitness <laughs> regimen <laughs> well he's still got that He's, he still has that, um, you know, it seems like Michael Madigan taken advantage of but he's something he was doing something he shouldn't have been doing. And it really leads to the question is he been doing this for other friends and have other friends I, been taking advantage I, of the incredible access that someone with a private museum in Beijing is able to get?
1: Right. Well, you know, I mean, you can't speculate on that, you know, I mean, like, like, as Zubu said to Bloomberg, like, he does have an incredible personal collection and the museum does have a legit collection. Like, you know, Maybe he was in this for Fede. Maybe he's in for one or two other people. But like, it's not like the entire museum is a front. It's really no, definitely. And I should say, no.
0: in addition to to the DMS, I uh, I spoke about earlier. I also got some DMS from a couple artists that are either in the collection or have upcoming shows at the museum talking about how great the experience has been mm-hmm. in working with everyone at the X museum. So, yeah, um, like,
1: like we should make that clear. Like, like Zufu is way bigger than just this one sort of like pseudo advisory, you know, uh scheme that he kind of got roped into. Like, like he's a really, I mean, I've known him for years. He's a really, uh, you know, charismatic, remarkable guy. And the museum is very legit and very
0: cool. No, super, super nice guy. But unfortunately, in this day and age, you know, this is something that's going to stick to him for a while, justified or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thoughts and prayers. And Michael, hey, if you want to come on the pod, we would be happy. Always happy to hear your perspective on these things. Mm -hmm. Um, Always welcome. Anyway, so you're in L.A. Are you going to go up to San Francisco for the Fog Art Fair, which is the first interesting art fair of the new year?
1: You know what? I am going to San Francisco for the Fog Design and Art Fair. It's my first time going to this fair, actually. I've been to San Francisco before, but I've never been there for the fair.
0: Don't love San Francisco. Have never Mm -hmm. been to the fair. Do enjoy Mm -hmm. Swan's Oyster Depot. I would highly, highly urge you to ensure that you have a meal there. I know. I'd be be very disappointed if you don't make it. Just do it for me.
1: I'm going to publicly air out my brother on here because I, I suggested to my brother that we meet at Swan's uh, for a drink and a snack. And he said that the lines are always crazy there and he didn't want to go. And I was just like, I'm in, I'm in town for 48 hours, man. I want to go to Swan's like, like, I don't care. Make it happen. Sit at
0: the bar, have an anchor steam, some yeah, some, exactly. some, some crab, a little bit of totally. sea urchin.
1: That's all I want is an anchor steam and just some some delicacies from the ocean. I've been seeing know?
0: I'm I'm not coming out. I've been seeing some previews. They look, they look pretty good. There's some good stuff. Oh, kill, yeah, totally. Killer Richard Prince car hood that I would just die to own uh mm-hmm. good go take a look at that for me i don't think unfortunately i'm going to be oh, I um i will come out uh is it shit next week next friday mm-hmm. i will be in la for two days only jonas wood has a show opening at the kordansky gallery go. uh gotta go see those in person hopefully get my hands on one um it'll be a I fun time could we're, you we're could do you, a live you, pod yeah we, a live uh, pod in yeah yeah definitely um can you try and get me like a four or a six top at horses on friday <laughs> you're on the ground out there can, can you make that work for I'll, me I'll, I'll, I'll try i'll try uh, this is tough, i buy. bud i buy you fly <laughs> <laughs> um and uh what else i was you know what this i did do i'm starting to ease myself back into the art world for 2022 i went to go see friend of the pod hugh hayden has a great oh, presentation great. at madison square park so he Saw did a lot. on
1: a bunch of grams it looks fabulous Hugh, super like cool extending the hot streak yeah, he's you on a roll him? right
0: now. I feel like we speak about him too much. Um, no, but you know, no, just right listen. Route. That's listen. When you're a friend of the pod, that's the kind of service you get. Exactly. Um, yeah. So everyone, go check get that get out. Access. It was a really interesting installation, and uh, that's it. We are really excited to be joined by Jasmine, founder and uh, owner and director of JTT Gallery. So excited for this conversation coming up, like literally right now, both on yeah, the podcast just... and in real time. So wow, stay tuned that. for that welcome back to note bene i am thrilled that we are joined today by the proprietor of jtt gallery jasmine sue um one of my favorite galleries uh, around mm-hmm. and we've been meaning to have you on for a while i had some outstanding invoices i had to take care of first <laughs> I think I too, before actually. before I <laughs> yeah here. actually wrote that. right <laughs> sorry
2: yeah, what's up with
0: that <laughs> oh sorry Nate. i should have checked with you on your outstanding invoices Nate, uh,
2: it's i'm gonna have to send you a paypal link I think.
1: okay just had it the money's on the way don't worry
0: I got you, Nate. No, actually, I don't. Um. Anyway, Jasmine, it is really good to touch base. And I think it's an interesting time to chat with you. I mean, it's always an interesting time in the fucking world. But you mm-hmm. are in between gallery spaces right now. Is that so correct? Exciting.
2: Correct. That is correct. Yes. How is
0: the build
1: out coming?
2: um just yesterday i i bought some chalk and i like drew where i want i'm sorry i'm just going to close my window um i drew where i wanted all my walls to go and I, i walked through the space and it was very exciting absolutely
0: i like that i like that way of dealing with architecture of like being not like on a piece of paper like but actually like here i am this is physically where i want this wall and this is where the door needs to be um at least for my brain it works a lot better that way
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally.
0: So you were on Christie Street for a lot, what, six or seven years, more than that? Yeah,
2: Five, years that. that. Five years. Exactly. Yeah. Five years. Five years.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Five year lease. There you go. And now where's the new space gonna be?
2: It's at three ninety Broadway in Tribeca.
0: Amazing. Wow. Ground mm. floor.
2: Ground floor. Wow.
0: Ground floor look at that. on Broadway in Tribeca. Got it. Moving on. Yeah. That is so cool. Um yeah, that's exciting. Um, yeah. Are you hoping to get something going this spring, or is it looking like a fall kind of situation? I would.
2: My fantasy is to open in March, which is our 10 year anniversary. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be really fun for me. But you know, construction is not exactly um, a timely. You know, it happens on its own time. So mm-hmm.
0: yeah, you, I, have to, you have to give it up and, and go with like its time, like the energy's time, the universe's time, because it cannot, it will not go on your 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 time. It's kind of yeah. like working with artists. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I know we've been talking about this the Tribeca thing for so long, but I felt like when you decided you were moving JTT to Tribeca, it was really the like the, the watershed moment. I, I can't imagine like another gallery having as big of an impact you know as yours. And what made you want to go to Tribeca finally? What about the neighborhood is is, is appealing right now?
2: Um, well, I love the spaces there, and actually. Um, I used to work at uh, Kimmerich Gallery, which was mm-hmm. located in Tribeca back in 2010, and I loved that space back then. And I remember dealers coming to visit us, but there was just nobody else down there besides Carrie shoes and us. And so not a lot of people came, but whenever dealers came, they would always say, wow, this, this space is incredible. We should, mm-hmm. we should try and move here. And it just didn't build a lot of momentum until recently. But the... Spaces themselves, you know, you get those, like, really tall 14, 16-foot ceilings. Mm-hmm. If you're lucky, you can find a space that's a bit, you know, wider and not just a long hallway. Um, and I think that's, like, something I'm always looking for, spaces that are as wide as they are long, Um just because like the hallway effect for looking at art is it's kind of a bummer somehow but um
0: yeah so yeah it looks like it was a shoe store beforehand in a lot of cases
2: yeah it was a sh- yeah well this, this space was a shoe store oh really before. oh shit! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you knew that no maybe
0: subconsciously i'd read it somewhere wow <laughs>
2: do you read subconsciously
0: <laughs> no but yeah, i I read, I, subconsciously. I, re- I read a lot and I'll, very little sticks in my head and then it comes out in weird ways like that got it got it got it, mm. got it. um so that's pretty cool that you've I mean 10 years. Um mm-hmm. that's incredible. Yeah.
1: The gallery is, is is gradually shifted westward across Manhattan, right? That's correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you, uh, you know, manifest destiny and whatnot.
0: You started out <laughs> you started out as an artist. You went to school to be a practicing artist. Is that true? Did I
2: Yeah, I wouldn't say I like ever actually started. I would say I tried, I attempted starting um to be an artist. And I, I still think that I work a lot with, like, I, I'm always very hands on, I like to make things. So I still, I think, interact with art in that way. Um, but I never really figured out, like, what was important for me to talk about as an artist. So that never really happened. I never had like an aha moment where I was felt good at that um, role. So
0: but you've been pretty good at rebroadcasting other voices or helping to give them a platform with which to to right. broadcast what they have to say.
2: Yeah, a lot of the projects I did my senior year of undergrad were about other people's art. And um, I just think it's interesting to listen to what people have to say and like receive information that other people have processed really slowly. Uh, I really enjoy that part of art for sure.
0: Like you like the conversations and the. the I like play. the
2: conversations. Yeah. yeah. I, um, I feel like it's an important part of the process, right? Is like the, re- the receiving end of all of this information that somebody has kind of put together um, as opposed to constantly content building, I guess. It's also about like content receiving in some way. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. So does that mean you spend a lot of time in the artists in your stables uh, studios? Like, do you do a lot of visits with the people you work with?
2: Um, I definitely spend a lot of time with my artists. They're like my only friends. So (laughs) I think I just, I, I, tend to gravitate towards spend, you know, I, I always want to spend time with artists more than kind of any other person in the art world for sure, <laughs> mm-hmm. which as a dealer is kind of a funny strategy. I don't know if it's like, maybe I should be out there more meeting other, you know, archetypes, but I just love being around people that um, have been reading a lot or thinking a lot or making a lot. It's mm-hmm. just the energy I want to be around. Yeah. Who
0: are the, who are the artists that did the first shows of the gallery that you're still working with?
2: Yeah. The ones, Topic uh, Street was the
1: first gallery right the, the
2: Suffolk Street was the first gallery I mean that my opened with Bill Walton when we still mm-hmm. work with that estate um and we I think our second show was Borna Samak and I still work with Borna and mm-hmm. I think our fall show was Becky Colesrud still mm-hmm. work with Becky and then I think it was Charles Harlan I could be having this wrong but I'm doing this from memory but I think it was him and I still work with Charles so the the original crew is all still there yeah I mean I- yeah most of them. I mean,
0: in my head, like Borna, like I can't imagine him in any other home. And I identify my view of his practice so much with seeing shows of his in your spaces. Um, yeah. You know, can you talk a little bit like what's that dialogue like and how's it changed over the years as his kind of practice has changed and grown?
2: Yeah, I would say that Borna was definitely somebody who I don't think I would be a dealer with I would not have I would not be an art dealer without Borna. I mean, we used to talk about me starting a gallery a lot. we were younger and it was a really sweet joke that i think propelled a lot of our um fantasies of our careers and then at one point Borna, in like the best way was kind of like you know i think we have to stop talking about this (laughs) and we think we have to do it and the way he kind of said it he, he never said it before he just kind of said it right at this moment that i knew he was right um and that was when i kind of a few things fell into place and then the gallery sort of started at that point. Um, but yeah, I mean, I didn't actually, Born and I both went to NYU, but we didn't really become close until after I graduated. Mm. Uh, I got a job teaching and he was actually my student. And I mean, there's only like a year or two year age difference. And we just, uh, we organized a show in China together and made a catalog together and spent like every you know, we spent a lot of time making this show and making this catalog and it, it was very, a very natural relationship that formed pretty early.
0: Yeah. What was the show in China and how did that come about?
2: Yeah, <laughs> where year was that? Uh, that was 2007, t- wow. the spring of 2008, Jeez. I think. Um, 2007, spring of 2007. Um, I was hired by NYU to be a uh, professor for a study abroad program in Shanghai And Borna was a student and I just was very interested in like siphoning as much resources from NYU as possible because of how expensive Mm. it was. And I was trying to I found like a couple of budgets that they had for exhibitions and for catalogs. And I just kind of kept writing the university and asking for money for stuff. So and also, you know, um, at that time, it was pretty interesting because. There was a few galleries like kind of popping up at Lugan Shanlu and like this um, part of Shanghai where a lot of there were a lot of galleries at that time and there was a an arts center that we pitched a, a group show to of all the students and Born and I really worked very closely um, on that show together um, along with Catherine Chu was also there. Oh cool. And, yeah and um, Tom McDonald. He's also mm-hmm. an artist there. Um, I'm um, Joey Kochardi. What he's a crew! Wow. Yeah, it was. Really yeah, that's a posse. <laughs> so it was like it was a it was a lot of fun, and we made this catalog of, that had text in it that I wrote, and yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, so yeah.
0: And then you came back after t- we do teach there for a year or two years.
2: I just taught there for one semester, one semester, and then I came. Yeah, and then I came back, and I had maybe. A couple months to a year off, and then I started working at Macaron um, as a registrar, kind of, kind of intern. It was kind of an intern. <laughs>
0: it was all—it was pretty casual over there. It but, was pretty casual.
2: Yeah. I don't think I ever had a role. I, I don't know why I said that. I yeah, got what, hired. What, I what was there. that era
1: of the Michelle Show like? What, what, what was it? What was it? Uh, the nine to five.
2: Um, it was a really exciting time for me because. Mm. Allison Gingeris was curating this incredible show, Pretty Ugly, that spanned over both Macaron and Gavin Brown. And yeah. I organized the consignments for a lot of it. And I didn't even know what a consignment agreement was before I got there and really started to understand the relationship between the artist and the dealer at that point. Um, so I like just so much growth came quite quickly for me in terms of what it was like at that time of Michelle's, you know, empire (laughs) or what it was, it it was like an interesting time because like it was, a lot of the artists were um, they were kind of growing into their mid-career status and I was just absorbing as much information as I could about these artists careers and having a lot of opportunities to talk about it with visitors and Michelle really let me do that, which was so generous of her, and um, especially Carol Beauvais, who just like whose work I just loved so much. Going in and got a chance to just talk, you know, with visitors about that it was so much fun. Um, so it was a it was a cool time for me. I mean, I think it, there was definitely moments when it was just me and Michelle and Ellen working there, which is such a small staff for such a big company for what they were what they were doing. Um, so yeah,
0: it was cool. I mean that's that's a really cool platform to get your first education on the commercial side. Totally. It. I mean that's you know there were there were people going into that space at the highest level, which I think is pretty cool. Um, I yeah. spent a lot of time buying work from there, um, and then you went right from there to you said Kimmerich, after that. Yeah, was Dennis
2: Kimmerich. Yeah, he, yeah, exactly. He was in Düsseldorf before, and then he came and opened up a gallery and tried sort of moved his gallery to Tribeca. He had, was already working with a few. um artists that were represented in New York. So it was a little bit of a transition to try and figure out, I think like what that was gonna look like. Um, And I think, I can't remember how many years he was open in New York, but I was there for two years. Did he
0: do a Carol Beauvais show
2: at one time? He did, right? yeah. yeah. Yeah, right? Okay. It was fun. Yeah, it was a ton of fun.
0: And, and yeah, a, really a, lot fun. Of, a lot of secondary business out of that space, too. Am I remembering that correctly? Or do I have him confused?
2: That's possible, to be honest. I didn't, I wasn't really like, even though it was just me and him, I wasn't really involved in the secondary. Okay, so I yeah, I think, I think it was happening.
0: Uh, and then you're yeah. like, oh, so I guess I'm just going to open my own space. I mean, that's pretty, uh, I mean, it takes a lot of guts. <laughs>
2: Well, I think I just didn't know. I mean, Michelle just made it look like so much fun. And it is a lot of fun. Um, is our it's fun? really hard to <laughs> um, I didn't think about that part of it. That just was like, let's do this.
0: <laughs> um, I like that courage. And it seems like you have a lot of courage in general. Um, how important over the years? I'm like, I know that like, I don't have any courage. I'm such a coward. Yeah, it's um, just like, Okay, Ted
1: Lasso. <laughs> like,
0: <what? laughs> um how important have fairs been to you it seems like you're someone that does a lot of fairs and gets a lot out of fairs and i know you're involved in i think you're on one of the committees for basel is that true or did i make that up
2: yeah i'm on the um i'm on like the statements feature committee for basel switzerland which is so it's a total dream it's so much
0: bribe fun. you to get in the fair
2: i wish that would be incredible no yeah. I don't. <laughs>
0: you, get, you get to spend a lot of shoulder season time in basel so that's always nice
2: yeah. Um, <laughs> it's just such an incredible learning process. I mean, you learn so much from the applications themselves. And then, of course, the other committee members who are so incredibly mm.
0: experienced
2: and knowledgeable and everybody knows something. Everybody has very unique knowledge. So it's really fun to be able to, for me to be able to share what I know about some of the younger artists and then to learn so much about artists I don't know yeah so i've always thought event. that
0: I and mean, for those that listeners that don't know these are committees uh that Basel does uh, of gallerists that basically figure out what what of their peers are going to be uh are going to take mm-hmm. part in the different elements and segments of the fair and i have always thought they're great because they're often very intergenerational we have right. uh you know young mid-career galleries that are on these uh on these committees and then people who have been in the business for you know 20 to 40 years mm-hmm. i think that kind of pass down of knowledge must be a really cool process to take part in
1: yeah totally i mean like you know the statement sector is always so tight it's like always just like hit 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 you know so i i am interested in the process by which you like 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 edit all the applications down to that you know like just you know roster of galleries
2: yeah it's the only i think i mean i i'm happy to be corrected but i think it's the only part of the art world where dealers are actually able to give to acknowledge other dealers Mm -hmm. and to um, lift other dealers up. And I think in a lot of other areas of the art world, there are of course like different roles for who kind of grants and acknowledges artists work, but it's really the only area where it's kind of dealers acknowledge both an artist and a dealer's work together in their relationship. So I I find it's like, um, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in it for sure
1: yeah I mean that's fascinating and it's probably true. I can't think of another arena where that's like truly the guiding force
0: behind it you know? yeah mm. Mm. so what's 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 the uh kind of what have you ever done a one off fair where you like, I'm just gonna go check out this fair, see what it's like, you know, don't know that much about it, and been like either this is amazing or not, or it takes you to like a, a part of the world you've never been to, like you or any... or it's just terrible, yeah, or it's just terrible. totally it happens. I,
2: I... I wish I could do it more. We do try to do a different fair as much as we can, but the truth is that it's they're just so expensive. So I'd rather just like, I would rather just go to Mexico city and just hang out. (laughs) Like sometimes, or like go to, you know, sometimes just go to LA or, you know, um, because the thing that's sort of a bummer about the art fairs is you, if you're doing your job, you're stuck in the booth most of the time. And it's just not like, you're not really seeing the city. So, But it is fun to kind of just get a chance to, like, you know, we've done a few, um, we've done Expo in Chicago for a number of years and got a chance to spend time with the collectors there. Or, you know, we did Freeze London for the first time. We've already had a lot of London clients, but it's just good to show up and bring the work to them. Um, It's definitely good for building relationships that have started by email, which are so funny, and to really get a chance to, like, meet people and talk in person. I mean, I I love that part of fairs. But they're a lot of work and exhausting, as we all know. Um, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and they're they're kind of funny post-COVID because I find standing in the booth, you know, not that it's post-COVID yet, but, like, you're sitting in this booth and everybody hasn't seen each other for a long time. And the conversations get sort of personal very quickly. Like, people hmm. are kind of just wanting to check in on how you're doing, and which is beautiful. Like, I love that there are these... Um, people out there that I can consider friends, (laughs) that like, uh, they're also my clients, but you can kind of check in on each other, but it also can make a very like exhausting work where you're just doing a very like emotional um, and like connecting over and over and over again. It it, like, I found myself, you know, kind of wanting to come to tears often at fairs this past year, just because like, you know, you're also talking about, just like a lot of whatever trauma or loss people have experienced the last two life.
0: years i think in yeah. general something that doesn't get acknowledged enough is how much emotional labor goes into the art market um mm. for, for not just for artists but for art dealers for art advisors um you know there's so much because your personal life can be so wrapped up in with what you're doing professionally and the boundaries are so porous and oftentimes non-existent And it can be really beautiful. And it's why I'm in this world and why I love it so much is the fact that I have these, you said friends, but you might only see them four or five times a year. Mm -hmm. And while there's a commercial aspect, like you really know them because you've been stuck in airports with them or at a dinner with them and like really gotten deep. And But it is a lot of work and it's a different type of labor than than most other aspects of our world right now. And there's a, a true genuine beauty in it, but it's exhausting. And I think something that COVID taught us is like, you know, you could step back from that at times.
2: Yeah. It also, It's just one of those things where I don't think you can just have a normal conversation anymore, you know, that that would also be weird, you know, we kind of have to acknowledge all the things that we've been through the past year, all the things we've learned, we've all gone through our own transformations. Um, and mm. so it's kind of important to honor all those transformations and kind of update people on who we all are now. But that is quite a lot to do at a fair that you're spending a lot of money to be at right. and Um, it's just a funny thing (laughs) to spend a lot of money and then kind of have like group
0: therapy (laughs) i i had some especially during like kind of the early quote-unquote early part of covid like deeper conversations with gallerists that i work with um even with clients of mine because we were all kind of atomized in our own spaces and like having to pick up the phone you end up having these long conversations like where are you what are you going through and it i don't know it just made everything seem so genuine and real and then to bring that into like the real space we actually see these people is kind of at least has been for me not jarring, but just, uh, or even dissonant, but just, you know, trying to kind of bring this, the, the virtual and the real back into one stream at the same time yeah. has been a lot.
2: Totally, yeah. I mean, I connected with some people by phone that we saw each other in person, you're kind of almost awkward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah. intimacy that was shared by phone just somehow doesn't translate in person for some mm-hmm. relationships, just pretty funny. Yeah. Um,
0: and with like and the mask doesn't... and like, are we hugging? Or are we not? Like yeah. what the boundaries are <laughs> of that.
2: <laughs> mm. um, yeah, there's just all there's all
0: different levels of intimacy in, in this in this job for sure. Um, I just uh, before we wrap up, I just want to talk you're kind of an interesting stage. You know, it's almost your ten year anniversary. Um, you're growing Happy in terms of the space you're moving into. Like what kind of gro- like how does that feel? Are you experiencing growing pains? I presume with a bigger space, like you've always had a relatively small staff, like I've known everyone that's ever been working there. Like mm-hmm. how do you how are you managing that kind of growing up process? Are you conscious of it or is it you just letting it happen organically?
2: Well, I have an incredible team right now. I'm so grateful for it. Like, I can't believe that I found these humans. Like, it's not like you can really learn so much about somebody in an interview process. And um, I'm just so grateful for, um, you know, my team. Um, but the the thing that's really hard, I think, is not so much the growing into Tribeca because I can sort of do that, you um, I know that problem and I know how to solve it very well I think it's a bit overwhelming but it's like I still can wrap my mind around it I think the part that's really hard that I wish um I wish I just could afford to hire like even more people to just help everybody on staff with their workload is really the institutional growth and I say this with like all the love and appreciation of the world for all museums but I think we all know how much galleries sort of supplement making institutional shows happen and of course how much institutions supplement our jobs like and make it possible for us to like flush out in a more mature way ideas and concepts so but it's just it's just hard like um i wish we had like five more people to just help institutions like you know just on the practical end so that's i think that's the biggest growing pain that hopefully we can afford to grow into it in time. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. yeah, I mean, g- g- good problem to have. Um, but you know, it seems like a lot of your artists are beginning to, to have more and more institutional attention and shows and yep. yeah, certainly like the museum's looking to you for like help figuring out shipping and like cataloging and, and whatever else goes into all that.
2: Yeah, there's just like a lot of communication that needs to happen in order to do something right. And that's that makes sense for everybody. And I think, I, I'm sure that, you know, it, it would be great if there was more resources for institutions too, you know. It's just it's just like there's multiple businesses within our business, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, slightly lighter note, are any particular restaurants you're really excited to eat at in your new neighborhood where the gallery is?
2: Well, we're really close to the Odeon, which is Obviously. great. But hmm. to be honest, I'm like excited about our new kitchenette like oh whoa yeah yeah very the lead tiny kitchen it's a tiny kitchen but um you know it's like every appliance that doesn't require a gas line that's my that's my whole focus right now so we're looking at toasters toaster ovens rice oh. makers water boilers anything like you know Let's i mean go. things that boil water, water yeah. not a water boiler but you know what I mean. yeah we know
0: we know what you mean i love it little staff <laughs> lunch you guys can so, sit down close the door yeah you're amazing style. Wow. GTT is the most,
2: is the restaurant I'm most excited to attend. It's Into that. Wow. I,
0: well, I hope I hope we can secure we can a, a res. reservation, man. <laughs> um,
2: hey, listen. All right, Jasmine. Um you're, you're awesome. I'm really
0: happy you made the time to do this. I know you're super busy and we look forward mm-hmm. to the next fucking 10 years, man. Muscle tough. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks. Right. And
2: Nate, um that invoice, I'm just gonna Yeah, yeah, on it. I'm on it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she, she takes
0: cash out, <laughs> so Nate. It's all good. All right, that's yeah. it for us, you guys. Note to Vene. out.
1: Out.